This morning we are going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians, uh, I just want to remind you where we have been thus far, not in the whole book, uh, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Uh, if you look at the top of your handout, you have Ephesians chapter 4 there, verse 1, and it's that Paul, a prisoner, encourages you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of how Christ has called you. And from that point, Paul then goes on to apply the truth in which he is given. And God's grace... As a Christian, all you need is knowledge of the will of God, uh, wisdom from God and how to apply that, uh, because Christ has accomplished your righteousness. You are Christ. There is nothing lacking in you to be accepted before God, to be righteous before God, to be His, because in Christ that is fulfilled. If you are in Christ, you are perfectly righteous. But there is a need within you to live for Christ. And in grace, he has given that in provision and he instructs us. And so as we have instruction from the word of God, it is not instruction in how we ought to be so that we can be righteous. But it is instruction of how we ought to live because Christ has made us righteous. And so I want to encourage you this morning, uh, as you hear the word of God, be reminded of his grace to you. Be reminded of how Christ has loved his church. And if you are a wife or a husband, be reminded how you must live because Christ has made you righteous and his. So look with me again, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and it is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And we spent two weeks looking at submission, the biblical commands of submission, and a wife's call to submit to her husband based not on her husband, but based on the design of God and the purposes of Christ, that the husband is the head of the family, just as Christ is the head of the church. It is not a possibility. It is a factual statement in God's design. The man, the husband, not just any man, the husband is the head of the house. He is the head of the wife. He is the head of the family. He has not that right, but that given responsibility. Whether he recognizes it or not, it is a given fact. And so God commands wives to live within that fact to the glory of Christ, to submit to her husband. And then husbands are given commands starting at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I want to remind you again, as we looked at uh, two weeks ago, the command here is for husbands to do what? Nobody sounds excited about that. Hmm. What is the command for husbands to do? Love their wives. The only command here, you are not called to submit your wife. You are not called to rule over your wife. You are not called to condemn your wife. You are not called to crush your wife. And we'll look at Genesis 3 next week, why that would even be a temptation for men. But the command here is to love your wife. 
The statement, the fact, is that the husband is the head, and the command to the husband is not to embrace your headship in such a way that you do whatever you will. You are commanded to love your wife as her head. You were commanded to love her specifically as Christ loved the church. And so we looked last week, if you want to look at your handout in a part one review, we looked at generally a man must love his wife devotedly. He has been designed to love her and that relationship has been designed to be the priority of human institutions. God created a man and a wife and for them to be naked and unashamed, vulnerable and together to the glory of God, to fill the earth, to multiply and have man's dominion over the earth under God. And he designed that relationship specifically for a man to be devoted in it. It communicates to all future relationships, that of parents and siblings, of mothers and fathers. They are secondary in priority to the relationship of a husband and wife. That a man is to remove himself, in a sense, from those being his primary relationships to his primary relationship being his wife. And stated in summary, he is to leave and to cleave. He is to be hers and she is to be his. So he leaves all relationships to devote himself to that. A husband has a God-given responsibility that other men don't carry. We looked at 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul is telling Christians, it might be good in my opinion, in my view, for you to stay single because as a married person, you are going to have an added burden of life, an added responsibility. A husband has the added responsibility under Christ by the choice of being a husband to care for his wife. And so all Christians are commanded in general commands, but as you have specific roles on earth, you have additional commands to that. So husbands have a command that is significant to them personally, that they are to love their wife. Not women in general, they already have that command. All Christians are to love others, but a husband is specifically commanded that this relationship must be a priority in addition not in place of. And I want to make that point again. It's good for all of us to hear that. We often think those specific commands to us start to take priority over the general commands of Christ. So we say, I've got to love my wife. I've got to love her. So I have to quit my job. I, I can't love my wife and work. Well, as you'll see this morning, you're ignoring commands to fulfill others. And Jesus is clear. He says, my burden is light. You can take his yoke upon you because he has carried the burden. Anything he's asking you to do, no matter what you think about it, is what's best for you in life. So you can't say, well, I've got to provide for my family so I can't go to church. I can't be part of the body. You are taking the commands of God and you are opposing them to each other. You're arguing with Christ that you can't fulfill what he has called you to do when he's given grace. And so husbands, having a wife doesn't mean you get to set aside other commands of Christ, other responsibilities. It means as you choose to be a husband, you are taking additional responsibility under Christ. And like all responsibility, that comes with burden and it comes with joy. It comes with great blessing. And many of you have done so. Jason, becoming a deacon, has chosen to take additional responsibility to just being a Christian and just being a husband. Danny and Daniel and myself have chosen not to just hold the responsibility of being a Christian and a husband, but also an elder. 
Many of you have chosen responsibilities in life, and God in grace and in love has given you commands to those responsibilities. So a husband is someone who has taken on additional responsibility. And God in grace wants you to do that well, and we have Ephesians 5 for that. Lastly, we looked at in general, this love is a love that continues. It's not enough to say, I told you that I loved you when I married you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. It's not a funny joke, even though I'm smirking. Because people have said it, and I hear people say it as a joke. I've never heard anyone say it seriously. But I assume somebody did at some point, and that's why it became a joke. Because we hear that, and we think that is laughable. Do you honestly think that's what it means to love a woman? To tell her once and let her know if anything changes. No, there are commands. This must be ongoing. You must be understanding with her. You must uh, not be harsh with her. You must be committed to her. This is a life pursuit, not a one-time commitment. A husband is to love his wife ongoing as he does in all things in faith, trusting what Christ has commanded, and in repentance, fleeing from those things that he has brought in sin. And so husbands must love their wives devotedly. They must love their wives as an additional responsibility that brings great joy in life. And they must do so continually living in love. Those are general principles for a Christian husband as he dwells on what does it mean to love your wife. Then we looked at in Ephesians 5.25, three things. Three commands, three ways, rather three descriptions of how we live out this command like Christ. And so husbands, I want you to dwell on this. We all need to know this. We should all encourage husbands in it. But husbands, these are your instructions in Christ. This is your commander, your king, the God of all things who died for you, instructing you. This is the responsibility you have chosen, and this is how you must live it. Verse 25, husbands are to love intentionally and sacrificially. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, the man is to be one who initiates. He is to have, as I described last week, a born ready love. This is not something he does apathetically. This is not something he looks to and says, this is an additional burden or responsibility I don't want, but I must do. This is what he wakes up for in the morning. This is better than his cup of coffee. This is better than a bike ride. This is better than seeing what the financial market's doing. This is better than anything else in his life because this is a clear command from Christ. This you wake up to do today. Everything else you can do to his glory or you can do in sin, but this you know you have clear command. You must do this. You need to live to do this. You need to be intentional. Just as Christ came to earth and gave himself up intentionally with purpose, Husbands must live with intention to love their wife. He spends his efforts not to please himself, but to please Christ. And he is commanded to do so in loving his wife. He's given you freedom in where you spend your passions on earth, but he has not given you freedom if you were a husband in whether or not this is your passion on earth. This is a direct command from him. It must be your passion. You must love her. And you must do so sacrificially, not living for your own pleasure, but as Christ came for his later joy to be fulfilled, that he would die for his bride, the church, you too live for later joy in Christ. You die yourself, you live to glorify Christ in loving her at the sacrifice of your own wants, your own desires to fulfill the commands of Christ. 
Then we looked at husbands are to love their wives with a purpose, their sanctification. As we see, Christ loves the church not just because he wants to love the church. He has a purpose in his love for the church. He wants to sanctify her. He has and he will sanctify her because he has cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. For a purpose, he's going to present the church to himself in splendor. And we looked at Revelation 19, the declaration of the bride before the groom, that Christ has had a purpose in cleansing his church. And so men, your purpose in life, as you love your wife intentionally, you love her sacrificially, and you love her to be sanctified. You must be devoted to the truth. You must be a man who takes all of life and puts it before the the commands of your Savior and say, how can I fulfill these commands to His glory? You long to please Him. And so it is not just looking at what would please your wife, But how can you bring joy to your wife? You're not looking to displease her, but you are looking to lead her in the pleasures of Christ. That is all for the sake of review. All for the sake of reminding you what we looked at two weeks ago in the context of what is here. This morning, we are going to continue looking at these verses 28 through through 30 in two more statements about how a husband is to love his wife. In 28 and 29a, husbands are to love in an unbreakable unity. Husbands are to love their wives not just intentionally, not just sacrificially, not just for her sanctification, but they are to do so in such a way that unifies in an unbreakable way. They are to love her in an unbreakable unity. And husbands are to love in provision. They are to be those who provide And so let's pray that God would give grace. I recognize uh, when I teach on husbands, uh, I kind of preach like I'm preaching to just men. I feel like I'm a little more aggressive than usual. Uh, So forgive me for that if if that's offensive. I don't think it's going to change (laughs) because I do feel aggressive about it. And, uh, And Christ is aggressive about it. And he loves men and he wants them to love their wives seriously. So let me pray and then... Uh, We will go again to verses 28 through 30 this morning, looking at a husband's example of unbreakable unity and provision in love. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you have commanded us these things, uh, not that we would seek to do them to attain righteousness, not that we would hear them and say, oh, we don't have to do this because Christ has already given us righteousness. I pray, Father, that you would not let our lives revolve around what will earn us salvation or what won't, but you would let our lives live in the fact that you have saved us and we long to glorify you. I pray, Father, you would give wisdom and clarity to all of us this morning, that we would all be reminded of your great love for us, the unity in which you have made through your Son and the provision that you have given to all things in life and the precious provision of the blood of your Son that we might be righteous and holy without blemish and before you forever. I pray, Lord, as it seems uh, too much for me to preach and too much for our hearts to hear and to know and to embrace, I pray that you would, by your Spirit as you do and you are faithful, to give me clarity in preaching and, and wisdom in preaching and to affect the hearts of your people that they might glorify you 
and continued faith and repentance according to your plan. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Husbands are to love their wives in unbreakable unity. As I said, they do so intentionally. They do so sacrificially. They do so for her sanctification. And then we see in verse 28, in the same way, in, the, in such a way that Christ has loved his church, husbands should love their wives. As what? He gives a description, a simile to say they should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Husbands are to love their wives with an unbreakable unity, the type of unity that is displayed in Christ and his church. And Faith Bible Church, I know I don't have to spend time uh, expositing the love of Christ and the permanence of that love. No one can remove you from the hand of the Father because Christ's hands are what have put you there. The love of Christ is not something you can break. It is something He has accomplished. It is not that He saw something beautiful in you and chose to love you as long as you remained beautiful. It is that He saw something in His plan and purpose for all time that He was going to accomplish the glory of God and He purposed and chose and brought you into that glory. He loved you not because what you are, but what He planned to do. And so husbands are to love their wives in the same unbreakable matter. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Husbands, in the same way as Christ makes a permanent love towards his body, husbands are to make that type of permanent love for their wife, as though she was part of your own body. And you have a body, right? Some of you are very pleased with your body. You, you take selfies of it. You post it. Uh, you want other people to recognize the beauty of God's creation, particularly in you. Uh, some of you, maybe you're like, please don't take pictures of me. Uh, if you're going to take a picture of me, just let it be from the neck up or the ankle down. Please don't know. You have body issues. That's okay. Uh, that's, it's not okay. It's a result of sin, and it'll all be taken care of in eternity, actually. Uh, but that's just the way the world works. But whether you are joyful and want to display your body or you don't, what you do is care for it. You care for your body. You feed it. You make sure it's happy. You make sure it has what it wants. You make sure that it is going to do the best it can to get up every morning, even if your body doesn't want to anymore. Uh, you tell your body you're going to do this and you're going to be okay. And maybe you get a cup of coffee for it to help it out. Maybe you pop an ibuprofen to help it out. Maybe you, you give it a little pep talk in the mirror. Of the, I, know, I know you feel bad from the neck down, but you're looking great from the neck up. You can do this today, body. Right? You do whatever it is you do because you want your body to continue. Why? Because it's attached to you. It's yours. Whatever frustration it causes you, whatever difficulty it makes you, whatever it gives you that you don't like, you plan, you purpose, you function, you're committed to it. It doesn't mean you make all the right choices, right? Yes, I recognize people don't always do what is best for their body. What people generally do is what do they argue what's best for their body? They want to tell everyone else how they can feel better, how they can have a better life, how they can be healthier, how they can make their arms bigger or smaller, how they can do whatever it is they want for their body, and they're looking for ways to do it to their body themselves. 
And you love your body in such a way you don't always listen to the advice of other people. You go, no, that's not how my body feels loved. I understand your body feels loved by pull-ups. My body feels loved by jack-in-the-box tacos. So I'm going to love my body. Some of you are really wise and you do pull-ups so you can eat jack-in-the-box tacos. But you do whatever it is your body, you believe, needs. You function with your body in such a way that it is yours. You're not looking to get rid of it or dismember it. You might not prefer the appearance, but you're not looking to get rid of it. When your arm is bothering you, your first thought is not, I'm just going to cut this thing off. Why, why did I get this thing in the first place? Why did I get an arm? Do I even need an arm? Was this the worst decision I ever made? No. No, it wasn't a decision you made, right? God gave you an arm, and you view that arm as yours and given by God and inseparable. You don't look at your arm and go, Oh, this arm that God gave me. It's the arm's fault and it's God's fault. I'm just going to cut it off. I got a lot of power tools. I'm just going to go out to the barn and get rid of it. I'm going to go out to the garage or get the chop saw and chop some stuff. No, never, never does it cross your mind. And maybe in the moments of great weakness, you might even sarcastically say such a thing, but you, you're not planning and purposing how you can get your arm cut off and still function and be okay. You're not trying to convince yourself life will be easier without your arm, right? When your arm grieves you, you are doing everything you can to bring your arm into unity with the rest of your body. When your arm is crying out or your, your gout toe is crying out or your bad knee is crying out or your, your cancerous tooth is crying out or your shoulder is crying out, you don't go... I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get that thing out of here. I'm just gonna get rid of it. Maybe with your tooth. Ignore that one. That one's not the best illustration. Your shoulder, everything else. I'm removing it. I'm getting rid of it. No. No, you say, how can I bring this into unity with the rest of my body? How can I get my right arm to stop being in pain and start functioning again? And you ice it, and then and then you heat it up. And then you ice it again, and then you get weird suction cup things, and then you start calling your witch doctor friends, and you're taking all kinds of vitamins, and you're getting all kinds of herbs, and then you're taking them, and it's not working, you're rubbing herbs on it. You're, I know you people, right? Don't play like I don't know you. I know you. You talk to each other about how to do these things. You tell each other about how to do them. You're buying a bunch of snake oil and all kinds of things, and you are just trying to do everything you can to get your body okay. I know you people. I'm not talking to the whole world. I'm talking to Faith Bible Minifee. I know you people. You think about these things. You don't just go, eh, it hurts. I'll move on with my life. Some of you do. But a lot of you, no. You go, oh, I got I to figure this out. I need 500 solutions to fix this problem. This can't go on, right? Why do we do that? Because it's our body. Husbands, you were to love your wife in such a way, it should never cross your mind. What was God doing here? Why did he give me this woman? We will look at it next week. That's Adam's exact response in Genesis. He says, Adam, what are you doing? And he says, it's the woman that you gave me. That is the beginning of communication in sin from Adam to God to say, this is God's fault. He did this. And God says, no, there's going to be consequences. 
There's going to be difficulty in sin, and, and we're going to look at it next week again. But this morning, we're looking at this command to love your wife is fulfilled in such a way that you view your wife as unbreakable from you. Your mission in life is to unify her to Christ with you. That she is part of his body, and this specific woman has been commanded to also be part of your body. That there is no separation. The physical and relational intimacy of marriage is to be regarded as permanent as the commitment you have to your own body. You must see your wife as your body. Why has he given us such a command? Why has he been so clear about it? You could say, Jake, you're, you're grabbing all this from the illustration of the body, but he has made this clear. God has declared marriage as a relationship that is bound in such a way that is not to be separated, never to be severed. He has permitted, and it's in your handout, you could look at them, he has permitted divorce for adultery and abandonment, but he has never promoted. He has never said this is what's right. He has permitted, but it is always in grief. It is always a result of sin. And there is always sin involved. It never happens in such a way that is not like severing a member. Because he has been clear, this is a unity that is bound not to be separated on earth. Let me point you to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees, who are the religious teachers of the time, they come to him and they want solutions. They want pragmatic solutions. They see that this is what goes on. People get married and then they find within themselves, we can't do this anymore. They're living in their own flesh and they feel like their own flesh can't do it. And they tell each other and they talk to one another about it and they feel like there's no way for me to go on. And the religious leaders of the time self-righteously say, well, maybe we can come up with better solutions. And in the mistreatment of women, they allowed divorces for all kinds of reasons. In a lack of care for men, they allowed them to give up their responsibilities and commitments for all kinds of reasons. And as they come to Jesus, they ask him and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife in any case? And he answers, have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That sentence is not the invention of some pastor who is trying to communicate unity, like things through rings that never end and other things. That is a statement of Jesus. And what Jesus says is when man has been brought together with woman in marriage, God has made them one body. And what God has brought together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then does Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. God hates divorce. There are no questions about it. God hates divorce. It is permitted for adultery and abandonment. But permission does not mean it is required and it does not mean it is desired. God hates divorce. 
Divorce within the church will generally be a case of church discipline. In almost every situation, there, there needs to be others involved. This morning is not about divorce, and I would encourage you, if you wrestle with my comments and the severity in which I meet the subject, go to the What We Teach document online. Look, and there is explicit statements about divorce and the teachings on marriage and divorce. If you need other resources, there are some really good books I, I could help you with, but it's important that we don't listen to the lies of our society. Men, every day, every day you are tempted. And I, I know and am aware some of you have been tempted to such a level that you have committed divorce. I know that you've given in to this temptation, and I know that God redeems and God in grace accomplishes things, but we never look back at it and go, it was right and it was good, and we would do it all over again. We trust in God's providence. He has done what he has done. But divorce is not something we can hold lightly, because when we do, we're continually telling ourselves the lie. My life will be better if I cut off my arm. Cutting it off won't hurt as bad as leaving it on. Adultery is a destruction of that covenant. It is someone going and making a body that is to be one with another, one with someone else. Christ says that sexual morality is different than other sins. We often say all sins is equal, are equal. The Word of God begs to differ. There are sins that are more grievous. He says the sins of sexual morality are more grievous because not only are you sinning in general, but you're sinning against your own body. And if you do so as a Christian, you are sinning against God in a more grievous way because the Spirit lives within you. These things are serious, and we must hold them as serious. They're not something to joke about. They're not something uh, to treat lightly. There will be times where divorce is permitted. But permission does not mean desire. And I bring it up and I speak it so harshly and, and I hope clearly. Because Christian, I know you. And you know me. And you know that our minds easily listen to the things the world says. We are easily tempted to quickly start down that path. right? You, you can think of this here. If you are sitting here this morning and you have been married once and you have not been divorced, you could be sitting like the Pharisees in self-righteousness. And Jesus would say to you, Oh yeah, you've never murdered someone, have you hated? Right? You are guilty of murder. Christian, and I know many of you, you've had one marriage and you've been faithful to that marriage. And you might be thinking, I don't need this. But Christ would say to you, have you ever considered? Have you ever thought? Has the, has the thought ever crossed your mind? Maybe there's a way out of this. Right? Maybe you're sick enough to even plan and purpose to say, what if he died? What if he sinned in such a way? What if she sinned in such a way that I could get out? Maybe the wickedness of your own heart has led you not only to think of sin, but like the Pharisees, to try to twist the Word of God into something that can give you what you want. And you're willing to let sin reign in someone else that you might have it. Christians, these types of commands and husbands, these commands are not given to you because you don't need them. 
It's not given to you because you naturally think of your wife as just part of your own body and you have united to her and you have never questioned whether or not you would separate. These commands are given in love. Because in Christ and the way he has loved you, he knows you need to hear this, that you might love him rightly. He knows that you need to dwell on the truths of the word of God, that he hates divorce. That there is no reason a man should dwell on and think about it as an option. Because Christ has loved you in such a way he never considers. He never severs. In the most severe moments of your life, he is looking and he is pleading at the right hand of the Father to sanctify you, to make you holy, and he does so perfectly. Husbands, I know you struggle not just because of the temptation of the world, but you know you fail. You, you know you, you are not Christ. Though you live as a picture of him, you fail, and, and you make it difficult, and you make it hard, and sometimes you want to push that on someone else. And so you think, oh, if there was just a way to separate, it's, it's her fault. A hundred percent of marriage counseling issues that I've ever dealt with, ever. It's a married couple coming, and guess what? He thinks she's the problem, and she thinks he's the problem. They're not coming to say, we don't know how to unify in Christ. We don't know how to repent, and we don't know how to have faith. They're coming and saying, God, it's the woman that you gave me. It's the man that you gave me. We let our hearts get there. We need to dwell on the truth. We need to recognize he has loved us in such a way that is inseparable. That option is removed. And we need to do so also. So I don't know how often your mind is, is suffering in that way. I don't know how, how great the temptation of that type of sin is for you as husbands or even wives. But I want to compel you. The temptation does not have to be as great as it is. If you are living in such a way that that idea of separating yourself regularly comes to your mind, the command of Christ is given to you that you might live by faith. And repentance. You, you need to confess to others that you are struggling and dwelling in such ways that are unfaithful, not fulfilling the command. Don't turn it into a, oh, I, I can't do this because he, or I can't do this because she. You come and you say, I can't. I've listened to Jake preach and I know and I can read the Bible. I don't need Jake to say it for me. It says it right there in verse 25. Husbands are to love their wives and we're to do so in an unbreakable way. And I'm struggling. I need help. I need prayer. I, I need to live by faith. Help me to see where I can repent. He's given you the command because he loves you. He, intends you. he intends for you to walk in the manner in which you were called. And the manner of which you were called is one of permanence. His body is not separated. And so husbands, number one, you need to be thinking about how Christ has loved you. He has loved you in an unbreakable way. He gives further description of what that unbreakableness is. Again, it is not just, I told you I loved you once. I'm not breaking this covenant. So I'll be in the garage working on my car. I'll see you in 40 years for the anniversary party. That's not a commitment. That's not love. That's not faithfulness. That's not pursuing to do the things of Christ. That is a pharisaical heart that goes, what's the command? Don't divorce. Fine, I won't do that. Other than that, I'm pretty much out. No. Nope, there's commands of how that functions. And so he says, husbands are to live as Christ does in love for his body. 
And what does Christ do for his body? He nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, a husband is to nourish and cherish his wife as his body. Because we are members of his body, Christ nourishes and cherishes us. And husbands, as they love their wives, committed to them as their own body, is not they ignore that part of their body. They nourish and cherish it just as they do their body. So look with me first. How do husbands love their wives? In two ways, nourishing and cherishing. Husbands, this is what you need to dwell on. How can you nourish and cherish your wife? And what does that mean? Nourish is to feed. It is speaking of provisional care. A husband is to love his wife by providing for her needs and sustaining her. You might think that's too aggressive, Jake. It sounds like you're saying that if a man doesn't provide for his wife, he's like an unbeliever, he doesn't even care for her, he's not living by faith. That's exactly what I'm saying, and I'm not saying it based upon my own authority. I'm saying it based upon 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is not my opinion. It is my opinion, uh, but not because of my experience. It's because the Word of God declares it. In 1 Timothy 5.8, it's not even talking about that most intimate relationship of your household. It's talking about a mother-in-law or a mother that she is to be provided for in your home. So when Christ says that a husband is to love his wife by nourishing her, it doesn't mean that he is just to occasionally give her something to satisfy her. It means that he is to be the provisional source for her. He is to be the one that provides for her needs. He is to sustain her. We looked at in verses 25 through 27 that husbands have a spiritual responsibility to lead their wife. We will look at it in Ephesians 6. They have a biblical responsibility to lead their families. When God calls to Adam after sin, he doesn't say, Adam and Eve, what did you do? He says, Adam. And Adam is the one given the command to cultivate the garden. Now, I want to be clear. This does not mean women cannot work. Women work very hard. Uh, whether they do so in the home, taking care of children in the household, or if they also do so outside the home in other ways. Proverbs 31 is very clear. This woman invests in real estate. This woman knows how to knit. She deals with markets. She sells things. She trades things. So it is not a command saying women cannot work. All Christians are commanded to work. There is no Christian that doesn't have to work. All Christians are commanded to labor. It is one way we reflect God. But husbands have a specific responsibility that they are to provide through their work for the needs of their family. I know this is unpopular. I know this annoys feminism. It annoys uh, all LGBTQ movements. It, it annoys everyone who thinks that there is no difference between men and women and the roles of men and women are no different. But the word of God is very clear. Men have a role and a requirement to provide for their family. And so a man is called to nourish her, to provide for her. And men, you should take joy in this provision. You're serving Christ through your labor to provide for your family. There is great joy in that. Like God has given you a responsibility that can be incredibly satisfying. Labor is not always satisfying. But labor for those you love and to provide for them brings satisfaction. 
We looked at it this week in Colossians. Paul rejoices that he suffers. Why does he rejoice? Because he is proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And even by his suffering, the gospel is being proclaimed. So he takes what was suffering, being beaten by guards, being imprisoned. And what does he do? He rejoices because he's suffering for Christ. Husbands, it's the same. Whatever job you do, if you're cleaning toilets, why are you doing it? Toilets are dirty. Yes, I understand. Somebody's got to clean them. But you're cleaning toilets so that you can provide for a gift God has given you as a wife and possibly gifts of children. And so you are cleaning toilets to the glory of God, doing what God has called you, what you know. There should be great joy in that. Great joy. I'm providing. I'm fulfilling. I'm doing what I know Christ has commanded me. And then I know you find joy in many things. You, you do lots of things that you find joy in, you get excited about, you rejoice in. Do you have direct biblical command to do those things? You look at those things in your life, everything in your life. We're very wealthy people. We have the ability to do lots of things. You look at them and you say, this brings me joy. This satisfies my body. This is what I need. This refreshes me. This re-energizes me. This gives me hope. This does this. This does that. You look at things. You think about your body that way. I'm not saying it's bad to have anything you do in life that has joy. We should have great joy. But you don't have direct commands for those things. For things like woodworking or raising pigs. For things like sports and athletics. Mountain biking and motocrossing. Deep sea fishing and camping and hiking for working financial markets, for finding and investigating new things and and new ways to do things, to watching movies and film, to listening to music, to making music. You don't have commands for these things. They're not wrong. They're not bad. You're free to do them. But you've been given freedom in Christ for what? To live for Christ. And do you know what you have a clear command in if you're a husband? Do you know what you have been clearly commanded that you can rejoice in? The Proverbs say, take joy in the wife of your youth. Let her be something you rejoice in, something that satisfies you, something you love, something you work and take joy in working to care for, to provide for her, to nourish her. And I know some of you husbands, you you might be mad at me right now. You might be thinking, Jake, you know what my wife is going to do with this? Do you know what you're telling her? Friend, I'm telling you what God has said. And I've told her clearly what God has said too. She's called to submit to you. And you are called to be the head. You are called to make the decisions. You are called to choose how to fulfill the commands of God. And you need to choose. You need to lead. You need to make wise decisions and you need to recognize while you have much freedom in life, you have clear commands. If you are a husband, you must provide for this woman. All other provisionary things might be optional to you, but that is not. You must provide for her. He says, if you do not, you are worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. If you make this command secondary, You were saying Christ is secondary. He must nourish her. He must bring home the bacon. Not just financially, but spiritually, he must be the provider. 
You must invest. You must spend your time and in, in, in thoughts and energies into this. You are called to nourish her and you are called to cherish her. You're not called to just walk in the house and put the bacon on the table and say, hey, that's my job. Bacon's there. Nourished. Consider yourself nourished. No, that's a prison guard throwing food into a prisoner. Hey, here's your food. Be satisfied. Hey, you know what? Some prisoners don't even get that. (laughs) That's not who we talk to. Maybe Danny says that occasionally, but the rest of us, we say the children, right? You're going to eat what your mother gave you. You know, there's kids in Africa who their mother's giving them just rice and beans. They're just eating posha all day. You got some trendy, some hipster mac and cheese in front of you. You enjoy that right now. No, we cherish. We say we care for you. We, We love you. You provide for her in such a way that it is not just nourishing, but it is cherishing. Nourishing is to provide provision. Cherishing is to provide warmth or comfort. You are commanded not just to provide for her needs and move on, but you are commanded to use your resources to provide for her comfort. You are to care for her as a treasure. You're to care to seek to comfort her, to ensure your confidence and her confidence in Christ's provision. And to do so. Now, I want to remind you that those commands are not based upon anything but the Word of God. And as husbands and wives, we have to regularly wrestle through what does that mean to be nourished and cherished? You might think that nourishing and cherishing looks slightly different than your spouse, right? You think I've provided you this and that and this, and they think, but what about this and that and this? I'm using broad, vague terms because it's your own things for your own relationships. Here's what the Word of God is clear about. If you look in 1 Timothy, it talks about sustaining contentment by having clothing and food. So when I talk about nourishing and cherishing, I'm not saying that your husband has to provide you two vacation homes. right? You don't get to go to your husband and go, hey, Jake was really clear, but you got to nourish and cherish. I feel nourished, but I don't feel very cherished. But a house in Newport Beach would make me feel cherished. Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. Right? Remember, ladies, these are commands to husbands, not you. You're, you're not commanded to figure out what nourishes and cherishes you in any way other than to help your husband, to assist him, to come alongside him and say, Babe, I, you are a great provider. I'm thankful for so many things to wrestle through those things. And then at times where you see correction, you say, could we consider what we're doing here? In the same way I gave husbands instructions, this command for wives to submit is not a command for you to submit your wife. And this command for husbands to love their wives in a way that nourishes and cherishes is not a command for you to demand nourishing and cherishing. This is a command for him to do so. And if you're a part of Faith Bible Church, you know that men of our church are going to call him to do so. If he is not looking to do so, uh, he will not be a man who's comfortable. Uh, He will be a man who either distances himself from us or dives in to glorify God. So hear these commands as they are, husbands, to you. A love that nourishes and cherishes does so not out of duty, but out of delight. It rejoices in what God has allowed it to do. A husband who loves his wife in nourishing and cherishing will find joy in what he has been blessed with. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Men are commanded in Proverbs 5.8 to let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth 
as a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times and be delighted and intoxicated always in her love. You must study to know her. You must spend your time to think, how can she be cherished? How can she be loved? How can I take great joy in this woman? What does she desire? What does she want? You must be patient and kind with her. To love her is to live in patience and kindness. To cherish her is to love her as Christ has commanded. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. It's on the bottom of your handout. As you were thinking about this, how do I love and cherish her? How do I do this provisionally in a way that glorifies God? He has not left us without clarity on what love is. And this commanded love, though you hear it at weddings, is not given to a husband and wife. It's given to the church. The church is commanded what love looks like because we are to love one another. The love of your life in marriage is to be a reflection of the love of Christ, his bride. There is no understanding how to love your wife or your husband if you do not love Christ and his church. And so as I'm going to use this as an example for you as a married person, as a husband, how to love your wife, I want to remind you this example is not written to husbands. It's written to all of us as a church. We are to love one another in this way. But husbands, you have a specific command, responsibility of love, to love your wife. So how do you do so? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 gives us a very clear definition of love. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Let me just walk you through a few things I want you to recognize as you're dwelling on love. How do I love well? Well, notice there is two positive commands and then a long list of negative commands. He gives you both antonyms of love and synonyms of love. And he leans heavy on the antonyms, those that do not define it. Because as sinful creatures, that's where we're going to struggle. We're going to try to justify things that are not love to say they are. And so he says first, love is patience and kindness. This is the positive, the joy. You are allowed the privilege of being a picture of Christ. And you're to do so patiently. That means enduring suffering. It means in times of difficulty, waiting and enduring. To do so patiently. You're not trying to accomplish everything and get it done and function and make it over. You are willing to endure through what is difficult. Patiently and kindly. You're not just showing endurance. You're not saying, fine, I'm going to stay here until this is accomplished. You're doing so in kindness, in care and affection. Love is patient and it is kind. And don't be deceived. It is not this. Love is not envy or boasting. Love is not to be envious. How does this play out in marriage? For both husbands and wives, envy or boasting is often communicated, maybe in your head or maybe out loud, that he or she has it better than you. You're bitter with God that he made you what he did. You think if I was just the wife, if I was just the husband, oh, if I could just go to work every day, oh, if I could just stay home with the kids every day, you envy, you boast. He says, this is not love. Do not do this. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not arrogant. It communicates or it does not communicate or act in authority because of superiority, but rather in authority through humble responsibility. 
right? A love from a husband that is arrogant is one that is going to demand his rights, it's going to uphold his rights, and it's going to neglect the responsibility Christ has given him. You're not to be arrogant. You're not to view your role as the head of your family as anything other than a humbling responsibility from God that you need to function in patiently and kindly. It is not rude. It is, you are not to speak in a harsh way. Rather, you're to consider her in the ways you speak. Do not be short with her. Do not be rushed. Do not be unconcerned if you offend her. How do you understand rudeness? It is not defined by God alone. If someone thinks you are being rude to them, it is rude of you to not stop and acknowledge that. Whether you were being rude or not, you do not have to respond in rudeness by saying, that's not rude. You leave me alone. You're not right. God's right. I'm just telling you the truth. It's not my fault if it offends you. <laughs> oh, Live with your wife in an understanding way. Christians in general, we are not to be rude. We're not to speak harsh. We are to be considerate, patient, and kind. Love does not insist on its own way. Don't be demanding as an authority or assuming things should be different because you have authority. Ignore uh, both doing so, both ignore the grace of God. If you are demanding based on your authority or assuming things should be different because you're the authority, you are ignoring the grace of God and the command to you that you are to lead in this patiently and kindly. You're to progress things forward. You are to initiate. You are to sacrifice. You are to love. You lead the way Christ leads. Number one, you lead like him. Number two, trusting that even the obstacles in your marriage... Even those difficulties before you, men, that you must lead through, those are handed by God's providence. Don't insist on your own way. Don't tell yourself, this trial, this obstacle, this isn't my fault. No, it might not be your fault. It is the grace of God and love for you that this will be sanctifying to you and your family. This will help you. This will bring holiness to you. Don't insist on your own way. Don't be irritable or resentful about what is before you. Be faithful and trust God. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Motivation. Love finds its pleasure in truth. Not in wrongdoing, but in truth. Husbands, wives, Christian, what do you find your joy in? Do you find your joy in the truth? Do you rejoice in the truth? Is that what brings you pleasure and praise? The truth. I want to encourage you this morning as we look at Ephesians and continue next week looking at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. This is the truth. Husbands, you are to love your wives. Wives, you are to submit to your husband. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, verse 32. However, let each one of you see that he loves his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. I don't know where you come from this morning. I, I know where most of you came from, Menifee. But I don't know where you are emotionally. I don't know where you are in your walk with God right now. I don't know where you are in your marriage right now. I don't know what you're rejoicing in. I don't know what you wake up and dwell on every morning. I don't know what it is that brings your heart joy. What is it that you see as your escape? What is it that brings you pleasure? I don't know if you're rejoicing in wrongdoing. Or you're rejoicing in the truth. But I want to encourage you. If you love Christ, 
There is great joy in Christ. You can rejoice in Him. There will always be joy in Christ. Whether you are married or not, your joy is always in Christ. Whether God takes your spouse or leaves them, there will always be joy in Christ. Whatever situation you are in, there is joy in Christ. And if you are failing to see the joy that is in Christ, you will not do so by dwelling on sin, dwelling on wrongdoing, looking for ways to escape. You do so by rejoicing in the truth. You love Christ and you know the love of Christ by rejoicing in what he has commanded. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you see areas in your life that need to change because of the truth of what God has commanded, purpose and plan to change them. Confess your sin to the Father. Repent, live by faith, trusting in what He has said is true. And to do so does not take the will of man, but the will of God and His grace. So let us pray as we know His will. He has made it clear to us. Let us pray that He would give grace to help us to have knowledge to understand it and the wisdom to apply it. Father, we thank You that You are a God who is good and faithful. I thank you, Lord, that you have not been unclear with us about the truth. I thank you, Father, that you have not just written to us only generally as all believers in what you have called us to and given us in your Son and in the church and by your Spirit, through your Word, but you have also written to us specifically in roles you have designed as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as children. I pray you would give us wisdom as we seek to apply those things. I pray that you would help us to be those that love your Son love you in such a way uh, that we strive to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, that we would listen to what you proclaim as truth and we would rejoice in it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.